welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners, I have the authors of the new book, The Boomers Retire, or should I say the fifth edition of The Boomers Retire, a guide to, for financial advisors and their clients. And those authors are colleagues and friends of mine, Alexander McQueen and David. And I brought them on the podcast to talk about their book, but specifically about the challenges facing this generation as they retire. And of course, we're going to twist this into how does this impact business owners? And with that, here's my interview with David and Alexander. Alexander, David, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. So, uh, I mean, like I need no excuse to talk to you guys, whatever. <laughs> that said, before we get started, let you introduce yourselves to the audience and tell people who you, who you are. So ladies first, Alexander. Well, I'm a certified financial planner and have been since I think 2006. Finance is actually a second career for me. And I thought, so I, I was married and I had little kids and I did something that required me to travel all the time. And I thought, I want to do something that <laughs> allows me to stay closer to home. And I thought that getting a CFP was the first step. To getting into finance. So I had a toddler and I was pregnant and I did the CFP coursework getting up at like four in the morning before the toddler to do the courses anyway. And then I, making this into a long story, worked in finance as an advisor, was insurance licensed. And then 2008 hit, uh, stepped back and realized that what I liked about finance is writing about finance. Took a job at a small fintech startup, wrote a book with co-authored a book with the one of the owners of that startup and that book writing journey for me had begun. Oh, that co-author just happened to be Moshe Molevsky, so that was a nice yeah. little benefit for the first book to be written. <laughs> People often ask me, how, how do happen? you write a book? And I'm like, step one, find famous co-author. <laughs> yes. I'll, uh, if you're listening, Daniel Crosby, I'm going to bug you. <laughs> anyway. um, that, that's so, what I did on this book, by the way. There you go. That's it. So it's just a string. Okay, fair enough. Luckily, I'm fortunate to know a number of famous uh, authors. I just picked on Dan because we go back and forth on Twitter all the time. But yes, Moshe, uh, whoever else wants to write a book with me, just let me know. I'm happy to throw my name behind yours. So second, so David, your turn, please tell us about your background. Yeah, so I'm a CFP as well. Uh, this is also my second career. My my previous career was um, I was a book and magazine editor. So I worked at University of Toronto Press and it's like Owl Magazine. So I did children's publishing, academic publishing. So I've, I've been around in that world. And so now as a CFP, it's nice to be able to work back in, in books as well. I, uh, I'm an advice-only financial planner at Papyrus Planning, my own firm, and uh, a co-creator of the CPP calculator. Handy little tool, I will say that much. Well, thank you. So just going to jump into the book here and kind of go over the table contents and talk about just the depth of which you went. And then we're going to go back and talk about the actual issues and problems. So you start off by discussing what retirement means today. Then you dive into sources of retirement income, tackling government pensions first, then employer plans, personal savings plans, talk about the investment choices, because again, that has an impact, tax planning tips and strategies, where to live, reducing your risks in retirement estate planning, working effectively in retiring clients. So one thing I want to say thank you about for this book is what I do love about this book is the fact that uh, 300 pages of explaining to the layperson how it is not easy. It never ceases to amaze me how people try to simplify this, this challenge. But the reality is, is that there are challenges that are facing this group or this generation of people that are that were different than previous. Can you, uh, either one of you care to speak to how retirement has changed? 
So we have sort of three themes in that first chapter. So there's like how retirement has changed for society as a whole. Like Canadians are older than we have ever been, right? The population is a neat little chart in chapter one that shows the proportion of people under the age of 15 and the proportion of people over the age of 65 and how, I mean, this isn't news, right? But that our society is getting older. And so that presents challenges for us as a society around things like long-term care and providing care for people as we age, healthcare costs. But as an individual, there are specific challenges that are kind of unrelated to those societal challenges. And we define them as retirement is increasingly longer. You know, we've doubled life expectancy in 100 years. And we've said that all of those extra years go at the end of life. Like they're not part of our working life. We still think of retirement as happening at 65. Federal politicians lose elections if they suggest changing the age at which people can access an old age pension from 65 to 67. As we so saw we, recently we, in Canada. So we, we have a longer life, but we've said we're not going to work during those years. We have to fund them out of our working years. And that's a huge challenge. Retirement is more diffuse. So even though we think about 65 as the so-called normal retirement age, because that's when you might access old age pension or you're, if you're in a defined pension which isn't the people that listen to this podcast, but if you're in defined benefit pension, you might have 65 as normal retirement age. The reality is it's all over the place. People are retiring. You know, people, you can read stories about people retiring in their 30s. And then there's people who are still working up until they're 80. But retirement isn't this on-off switch that you might think of it as. And then the third thing to your original point is that funding retirement is increasingly complex. So business owners have never really had defined benefit pensions as a group. But with the loss of defined benefit pensions, it means that more and more this retirement is a DIY proposition. Nobody's, you don't have a partner in this. You've got to do it yourself. And we keep adding strategies, products to the marketplace. And if you're going to plan for your retirement, the amount of stuff you have to know is just gotten bigger and bigger. Hence, 300 pages. Well, we're recording this the week that uh, Canada launched its first tontine, which is a subject all unto itself. But quickly on my little diatribe, uh, going back to an article I wrote in 2014, I think the retirement age of 65 is the one of the best examples of anchoring buyers in Western society ever, because that number, as I'm sure you know, came from the German pension, which was the first government-sponsored pension in modern-day society, which was started by Otto von Bismarck. And the funny thing is, is it was defined as something that was there in case you were unable to work anymore, because back then people didn't live that long. In fact, life expectancy was 35.6 when Otto von Bismarck pegged this back in 1881. And a German, so it was a male, 35.6 years of a female is 38.4. If we had adjusted the start date of government pensions based on mortality gains over that time, as of 2012, the start date would have been 95 years old which means today it'd probably be 97. So pensions for governments, basically, and the concept of retirement is very, very new. And really, pensions were for, oh my God, you are so old and broken, you can't work anymore. Not for, oh, by the way, you can start going on cruises and not have to work anymore and relax and enjoy your, your later years. That's really a less than 100-year concept, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. But it's one we all want. And it's also one that, unfortunately, um, the industry has, has pushed people to start thinking about it at 55. And I always say, that's a long time to do nothing. Anyway, David, in your mind, does that about cover how things have changed? Or is there other things we need to address? No, well, I mean, one thing that was interesting in researching for the book, too, was just that, you know, there's a conception or perception, sorry, that pensions, people with less pensions than there used to be. And, and the reality is actually mm -hmm. there's more people on pensions than there used to be. Just different of, types, right? Right. And also a lot of women entered 
have entered the workforce over the last 40 years. And a lot of many will work in industries such as teachers or such as uh, government workers or something like that, you know, not to brand everyone having the same career, but that's up the number of people participating in pension plans. And so there's this oh. perception that nobody has pension plans anymore, but that's actually more people than ever have pension plans. So it's, it's, it's safe to say that the number of people who are members of defined benefit pensions has increased, but the overall percentage of the population has decreased. Is that kind of the takeaway? I don't know if that's a takeaway. I think that more men have had less access to pension plans. That's and, fair. And I yeah. think that's the, the change. OECD data on the proportion of pensions by country and Canada always scores really high compared to the U.S. and many European countries. But it's because of the much greater fraction of our population that's employed in healthcare and all those people have pensions. Sorry, not yeah. including not including doctors. I'm talking about nurses. nurses yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the degree and size of the government plus pseudo-government organizations and industries, basically, those are the primary sources of defined benefit pensions. So let's talk about uh, retirement income. And first of all, let's talk about the, the first the first uh, myth or first belief. Let's talk to the, about the degree to which the government is going to support your retirement. So the major tenfold government programs, what are they? How how much money can people expect to receive from them? Best case scenario. Well, the main government programs is you're going to have your Canada pension plan or the Quebec pension plan. And that one makes up the bulk of people's income in, in retirement and or government income in retirement. And the rough intention of the Canada pension plan has been to make up 25% of your working life income in retirement. So that's the kind of guideline basis. Obviously, it depends on how much you contributed and how much you worked, what your income was over that time, but that's the main idea. So the bulk will come from there. And there's a lot you can do to increase that or decrease that based on when you choose to take your Canada pension. So you do have some choice there and, and some ability to increase what that does. And then the other major source is the old age security. It's the old age security. And the old age security is based on residency. So as depending on how many years you've lived between one and 40 years in Canada, then you uh, have that as a, as a, your set income as well. So, and that also has some choices to when you can start it and what the benefit will be as well. So that makes up nowhere near as what the Canada pension plan, but roughly, roughly half of that. So then if you, if you combine the both, you know, you might get up to 40% of your working in general income from that. Obviously people who are high net worth and high income earners, that's going to be different, right? Because they cap out at a certain amount, but. Yeah, but all said and done, you have those two numbers. Assume someone retires at 65, doesn't look to defer an increase or anything like that. Best case scenario, we're looking at roughly $20,000 a year for someone. And if you're a couple, that's 40,000 for a household. The reality is, and I've, I've had this happen more so in the past, not less lately, where people get to retirement, finally see what the pensions are. And like, I'm supposed to survive off that. And my response is the government was never going to pay for your cruises. They were going to help you pay for your food and shelter. So the message, I mean, the great thing about those pensions is they're there and they prevent abject poverty, right? And there's also other programs to do that. But the message is if you want to have any kind of reasonable retirement lifestyle that you're used to, you got to plan beyond that. 
So the next next phase was to talk about retirement income from employer plans. You already covered how more people than ever are covered by DP plans. Is there anything people should be aware of or concerned about when it comes to defined benefit pension plans? Well, the big thing I always think about or the big issue that is always front of mind for me because people talk to me about all the time because it's something I specialize in is that you hit 65 or you hit the age at which you can turn this pension into income. And one of the options that's often offered is the chance to opt out of the pension and receive a lump sum. And it's very tempting for people. You know, you look at that number, it might be well over a million dollars. Psychologically, it's like winning the lottery. What if I got a million dollars? I could manage it better than the pension plan. And I think the thing to be cautious about, I would never advise that, you know, there's a blanket, everyone should stay in their pensions or everyone should exit. It's a highly personal decision. But we get almost no thinking or education about that. You're presented with this kind of one-page form from your employer that says, these are your options at retirement. Do you want to take the pension now? Do you want to defer it? Or do you want to opt out entirely? And where do you go for that advice about what should I do? And when you look at that number and it's $2.1 million and it doesn't tell you how much tax you're going to pay on it, you don't necessarily understand that. That's the big, to me, the big sort of looming, I don't, I don't know what to call it, but it's a big issue that people grapple with and really have nowhere to go for good advice about it. Well, the problem is too, is the incentives are pretty one-sided, right? Like if you go to the average advisor you're dealing with, they're given a, a choice between telling you to take the commuted value and getting to manage those assets to receive money on it versus getting nothing. Not to say that good advisors wouldn't tell you that what the right answer is for your situation, but it does create an inherent conflict. So much so that in my practice, we actually get third-party actuaries the way on, on just out of a, out of principle. The other thing is too, you may have been at the Cypher conference when it was mentioned, but I wish I had the study. It was like psychologically, people discount the value of an annuity by about 30% of the actual present value of it. So that means that when presented with a lump sum versus an income stream, the human mind's not really good at understanding the inflation-adjusted value of an income stream for the rest of your life and factoring in insurance against you dying too soon. And more often than not, People will opt for the lump sum because they don't understand the value of the long of the actual pension itself. So yeah, that is that's a big concern because you make the wrong decision there. There's massive tax implications and massive and other other massive complications in terms of longevity. But here's here's another question to hit the both of you with, and one I've encountered in the past, and we'll call it the moral hazard of defined benefit pension plans. I met countless people during my career who basically simply say, "I've got a pension plan at work. My retirement's taken care of. About to think twice about." Is that wrong? And why is that wrong? Well, unless it's a government of Canada or municipal-backed pension, it's risky. It's true. But also throw in the, the, the twist that the government, you know, the pension plan hasn't asked you what your spending is or what your lifestyle is, right? So they're just going to pay you a sum. They don't care what the heck is going on in your life. And what's going on in your life may not be sufficiently covered by the pension. So you have that problem as well. Well, it goes back to, I'm going to let David speak in a moment, but it goes back to the kind of the idea you were talking about with how much is the government going to pay you in retirement? So we've already talked about retirement. It begins at 65 in many people's minds. And then retiring before 65 is retiring early. And then you get some money from the government to sustain you in retirement. It's built on a life cycle model of finance, which I personally think is really breaking down. So why would you need less in retirement? Well, presumably you've got a principal residence that's paid off. That is a reality that is not going to be the case for, Mm -hmm. because fewer and fewer, like if I just look at our own city of Toronto, who was buying houses in that age 40 cohort? There's an entire generation of people that are shut out from the, I'm going to have a mortgage and I'm going to pay it off. So if I look at my own parents' life cycle that they bought a house in their 20s, they already had children. They needed a house. They had no way to prevent children effectively. So they had four of us. They needed a house 
to stick us somewhere. They paid it off by the time they were 50. And then my dad was a university professor and retired with a pension. So none of those factors are true for me. Not a single one. Very true. Yeah, and I so, think too, like when when leading up to retirement, you know, that's kind of my preferred time to work with people is, is you know, that little bit of time before retirement. Because although inexperienced, a lot of people may have paid off their mortgage, but it's basically they've been paying it off with a line of credit. That's in many circumstances. But for those people who have paid off their mortgage, what you find is that lifestyle ramps up. And so, yes, they don't have this payment anymore, but it's it's now going to new spending that you know they were sacrificing while they're paying off their mortgage, that sort of thing. So when you go into retirement, it's not that you're going in without the mortgage. You've now increased your spending since paying off the mortgage. So you have to deal with, like you said, the real numbers of <laughs> your your lifestyle, right? I agree. So that's for that's nice for people who have defined benefit pensions. We've covered that. Let's talk about defined contribution plans through work. Now, where are the big pitfalls? And I mean, they can work. Let's just let's be clear on that. You know, you basically get the money, you invest it up to a risk that is at least equal to the pension plan. You get the long term returns, and you get you know, in theory, you could get the same kind of income as a DB plan without the kind of floor. But where are the pitfalls and common problems that occur within defined contribution plans that you're that you're concerned about? Well, the defined contribution plan, I mean, it's very much in a lot of ways just like the RSP, right? So you're managing that risk. And, and so I would say some of the greatest risks is, you know, really knowing your time horizon as to when you're going to start using, spending that money, right? And really knowing how you're going to withdraw that money. And with a defined contribution plan, if that goes into a lira, then you have a little bit less flexibility. Of course, in some provinces, you can, uh, there's some unlocking rules and, and such things. But, you know, really understanding when and how you're going to use that income over your lifetime is important to knowing how to invest it and what risk level to take on. And then, of course, there's the risk, less so in a lira because you can only take so much out. Mm-hmm. But... Um, from RSPs and that sort of thing. I mean, if you deplete that too fast or too much of it is eaten up by taxes because you're taking withdrawing too much at the beginning and increasing your tax, I think that's a big problem as well. And then well, I, would, I would say the third is figuring out how to take that income out. And if you're, if you're married, how to split that. People have different, people are different ages. You can only split that income. You know, a pension income, you can split from the time you get that pension income. Mm-hmm. But- a lira, you can only start splitting from 65. So if your retirement is before that, you, you really have to think that strategy through. So, and that brings me to an interesting question. So let's let's take a step back from the technicals. And I'm not going to get into the RSPs, TFSAs, and whatnot. We covered that previously in the podcast. And even with the business owners, there's a number of savings options we covered, like RCAs and IPPs, previous episodes on that. So, you know, we can reference those. But let's talk more about the, you know, someone gets to retirement, they manage to save there, or they're, they're right about there. And let's just say they reasonably certain or the BB plan, or they've actually gone to a planner, hopefully, and gotten confirmation they have enough money. What are the biggest concerns that they should be having at that time? Like, what are the biggest risks they're facing? The, whether it's the 65-year-old, 70-year-old, whatever it is, that person who's about to hit the stage where they are no longer going to continue working, their human capital has hit zero or will be zero going forward. What are the biggest issues that they face? How much can I take out of those accounts so that I don't run out of money before I run out of life? That is the number one, number one concern over decades. Yeah. And DB plans solve that. CPP and OAS is there until you die. but for every other arrangement, you need to figure it out, and it's complex. And it's 
it's interesting because, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen it too. The person who tells you, well, look, I got no one to leave it to. I want to bounce my last check to which my always old joke is it better be for the thing that kills you because frankly, I can't predict it otherwise. Right. Like that's the reality of it. And it's the, you know, we're trying, we're trying to hit a target. Where we don't know what the end date is. That's, that's highly problematic. And I think it's even more problematic in the fact that longevity products, everybody loves the idea of being part of a defined benefit pension. Like lots of people love the idea of having that, having not been worried about retirement, but we can give them the same thing in the open market by selling an annuity. But how many right. people will actually pull the trigger on an annuity, right? That's yeah. it's like they hate annuities, but they love DB pension plans. Like no one can square that circle for me. It's kind of bizarre. No, you're completely right. If the biggest question is how do I make sure that I have enough money or that my money lasts until I die, the answer is extremely simple is to buy an annuity. And the, the, the cheapest, most effective annuity is the plain old BIA or single premium income annuity. You give a chunk of money to an insurance company and in return, they give you a little bit every month for as long as you're alive. And the moment that you start adding riders, like it continues to another person or it continues for a guaranteed period or it has inflation indexed in, then the amount goes down. So you want the most bang for your buck. It's that SPIA, but the choice is irreversible. So people don't want to do it. And the commission, to be frank, the commission is low for advisors. So if if I buy a bunch of mutual funds, my advisor is going to get a little bit every month. So I'm providing the annuity for the advisor. Well, it's like Charlie Munger said, show me the uh, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome, right? Like a uh, annuity is going to pay you at most 3% up front to the person who sells it, versus the investment management is probably going to pay them somewhere in the neighborhood of 1% indefinitely, right? So the incentive is not there. But I will also say, regardless, like, again, good advisors will still re- re- like basically make the recommendation. The bigger issue is com- you're coming down to is, you know, go back to the pension decision, someone with a million, $2 million, like they never cut a check that big in their lives. How many people in this world have cut a check? for over a million dollars. And in many cases, that's what we're talking about doing potentially, if not, maybe not a million, but the you know, last time I tried to do this was with someone who would have benefited from putting $400,000 into an annuity. And the thought of that, that person's thought of cutting a $400,000 check that they were never going to be able to just get their money back other than by outliving it was like non-starter in conversation for them. Yeah, I think one of the things that are missed out by tools like an annuity, tools like long-term care insurance, and even tools on the estate side, like a participating whole life or universal life policy, those things add backstops that allow you to spend your money more freely. And I, and I don't think that that's mm-hmm. communicated enough. You know, if, if, if your desire is to max spend and spend it all, everything you've earned and enjoy life, well, if people don't use these tools that are at their disposal, then you always have to have a large chunk in reserve. And that's just the nature of it. So you can transfer that risk elsewhere and then it frees up you to be able to spend, right? So it's really what your aims are. Don't forget you can mix and match. I think that people often portray this as an all or one decision, like either Mm -hmm. I, and that's kind of the DB thinking because with a DB plan, typically all or like, Everything but your CPP and OAS, all of your retirement income is coming from that DB plan because it's used up all your RSP room. People don't tend to save a lot, like most people in general don't tend to save a lot of additional uh, funds, whether it's in a TFSA or a non-reg fund. So there you go. All your retirement income is coming from that one pot. But if you if you don't have a DB plan, you can mix and match income sources to give you some backstop and some flexibility. But let me, let me, I want to kind of go back to something David said earlier about the spend it all and that, that assumption. Like, I know people say that and it comes out of their mouth, you know, it'll come out of their mouth that I want to leave anything behind. But, and a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the um, conversation around retirement is based around income maximization over the lifetime, right? But in reality, 
This seems to be based off the premise of people are just going to spend whatever the heck hits the bank account. And I fully believe that that's normal to a certain level of lifestyle, right? Like if I need to pay for food, shelter, and just basic transportation and all that, and I'm barely at the line, I'm willing to believe that I'm probably going to spend every last penny that's my bank account. But as net worth increases, how realistic is that? I mean, I got to tell you from my practice, like I've only had, like I can count on one hand, the number of clients who couldn't control their spending beyond a certain threshold. Like it was, you know, they get to a certain level where sometimes a lot of these people are receiving more money from their riffs or whatever else it is than they actually spend and we end up reinvesting it because, hey, they're doing what they want and anything beyond that, like maybe they just, they've run out of interest. So is that your experience? Do you think we focus too much on, on just like that message of income maximization, spend it all, or is there something, is there something, or am I missing something here? Well, isn't that like a feel good message? I mean, if you're an advisor and you're trying to win a client, aren't you going to, I'm not trying to be overly cynical, but I would rather deliver the message. Here's how I can maximize how much you can spend versus we need to take a careful look. Now, obviously it'll depend on the client, it'll depend on the advisor. But if I want, from a sales point of view, I want to deliver the message that I can give you more than you were expecting. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of, there are lots of promise sales pitches advisors can make and that's, you know, returns or more income is definitely one of or definitely two of them, but it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's missing the wrong target. I mean, too often, often, you know, and I'm sure you get to this in your book, it's, you know, what is it you want your lifestyle to look like? Great. Let's see if it fits. If it does and there's stuff beyond that, then we can talk about options, but this entire, I'm just gonna just, just find a way to blow it all. Just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't resonate with me quite honestly. I think people spend their entire lifetime accumulating money I want maximum returns. I want to take risks. I don't know how much I'm going to need. I want that to grow. And then very often you'll do a financial plan for somebody and you talk, you know, it's all based around their goals. What do they want? What do they want to achieve? What do they want to do? So you lay that all out and you bet what they need. And with certain assumptions, you can show them they have more than enough to do everything they want. So you can either say, do you want to do more? Do you want to retire earlier? Or if you're happy with that, maybe we can really dial down the risk. The point of taking so much risk when you've, you're able to achieve everything you want for the next years. And obviously, you got to be worried about inflation and, and you know there's other risks there. But often people in retirement will have their portfolios trying to get 8 9% and taking a lot of risk when really you show a projection, you're like, really, you need to keep up with inflation. Like basically you need 2% and you can achieve yeah. everything. It's interesting. It's the, it's the risk need component that doesn't get discussed enough, quite mm-hmm. honestly, where you now we've had that happen all the time. People are very afraid of rationing down their risk or whatever it might be. And, and, but then I'll show them like in our plans, by the way, you could make 0% for the rest of your life. You never mm-hmm. run out of money. And, and then suddenly they're like, why am I putting myself through this? And I think, I think you're right. It's almost like they're running the rat race to try to get to something, right? But they passed the finish line so long ago, they haven't even thought about it. Or I think the, the conversation around how much they can spend also is the same thing. It's like, well, I need to have as much as possible. And it's just like, but if your lifestyle is at a certain level and you could spend 50% more than that, what in your lifestyle did you want to increase that you didn't tell me about in the first place, right? It's almost like I've had that conversation about like, what is it you're not spending money on that you want to spend money on that you haven't told me about? And when I frame it like that, they've often come, like they just kind of look at me dumbfounded sometimes thinking like, I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> Like, so it's it's one of those things where yeah, and if you it's the old Yogi Bear quote: if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up somewhere else. And unfortunately, some people pass retirement a long time ago and fail to realize it. But I want to come back to the book for a sec, and I want to come back to a section that I think a lot of people would not necessarily think would be in a retirement book, and that is the section on where to live. Can you address the issues surrounding that? 
Well, we wrote this book during COVID. I mean, it was an interesting time. I refer to this as a pandemic project because all of a sudden I had some spare time and I'm like, oh, let's write a book. Where to live? Well, so think about the word downsizing. People always talk about downsizing as something that people do in retirement. So I'll use my parents as an example. They downsized. And that means they sold the four-bedroom home that they lived in and raised a family in and moved to a condo. So they sold their four-bedroom home for $600,000 and bought a condo for a million dollars. And the condo has ongoing condo fees. So did they downsize? Is the condo smaller, but it's more expensive. So there's a lot of the question about where to live is we have these underlying assumptions that I think are not really explored. So people say downsize to release equity from a home. But my parents are in Calgary. That's not a conversation that's happening in Calgary. No. Well, it's definitely a conversation happening in Toronto. I mean, it's the reality of it. It's, uh, but that said, I mean, everything that's happened in COVID, the reluctance for that, I think, generationally, has got to be hitting a high, right? Between what's happened in the you know, long-term care facilities and the thought of, oh, my God, if this happened again and I was stuck in a condo and I had no green space, like, I got to think that that's going to, this is a shell shock for a lot of people. It's going to leave a lot of them to want to maintain their current home residence, if not, you know, at least a, a free a freestanding home as opposed to a smaller shared unit facility. We didn't discuss this in the book at all, but there's the explosion of equity, of home equity, the rising, I, I discussed it a few minutes ago saying that there's a generation shut out of home ownership. But the other side of the coin is people who all of a sudden have a million or more of home equity. And we don't really have, we haven't really integrated that into our thinking. So is that all for the kids? So are you staying in the house until you die so that the kids get this tax-free gain on the principal residence? Or are you selling and quote unquote downsizing? What does that look like? Like, are you moving to a, a smaller place, a different place? a cheaper place, a more expensive place, a place that's more suited to living. You don't want to go up and down stairs all the time in your 80s and 90s. Maybe you're moving to a condo or a residence that's designed with fewer stairs or the reverse mortgage, you know, the most hated product on the Canadian financial landscape. But it allows you to take that equity, to harvest the equity out of the home at a cost. But is that mm -hmm. if you have all this surplus equity and you have lifestyle spending needs, maybe that's the right thing to do. Yeah, I never, I never understand, in most cases, product hatred. And we had this discussion about, like, you may not like the reverse mortgage, but in many situations, it's the only bloody option. So just be grateful it's there as an option, because otherwise, you'd be in the worst shape. I think the trouble is, like, you look at the ads on TV for something like reverse mortgage, and they encourage you to use it in the absolute worst possible financial way you can. Right. Renovations and yeah. reverse mortgage is a backstop. You've run out of non-registered savings. You've run out of your TFSA savings. Now you tap into the reverse mortgage. Not I'm putting in my second hot tub. No, agreed. Or you're getting close to that that ruin point. The other thing I think that's going to be a, a pressing issue for this generation is, especially in areas like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, you know, congratulations, your house is inflated in price now and you made a killing off it, a generational killing off it. Taxes are going to start to creep up on the value of that thing. And every year without failure, at least once a year, some newspaper in Canada publishes this profile of an 80-year-old little widow living in downtown Toronto, but typically off Little Italy, Little Portugal. And I'll say that because of my <laughs> culture. And they'll be like, this poor woman, taxes on property are so high, it consumes like 80% of her CPP and OAS, right? And it's like, this is an issue with society. And I sit back and say, she's sitting at a $2.5 million house. This isn't an issue with society. This is an issue with the choice. And I think that the problem is, is that we're going to start to see a lot of, there's still a lot of people just like that little old lady around that little lady, around that age, living in those downtown communities that are going to start to see this problem become more and more of an issue. I mean, governments are starved for taxation. Property values are higher. It's based off a percentage. It just 
those assessments will eventually catch up with people, probably at a faster rate that, uh, than inflation. You should obviously reverse mortgage <laughs> just the amount for her property tax. And well, but- funnily enough, I had three different fintech startups in the last six months contact me specifically around this, specifically citing old people in downtown Toronto and their inability to maintain the property without having to reverse mortgage. So it is- uh, But that's a logical use of the reverse mortgage. If you want to stay absolutely. in that home, if you can pay for long-term care, you don't want to send mom or grandma to the long-term care facility because you have concerns about their safety. This is a, really, it's a risk-free in the sense of you're tapping into the equity. Yes, you're reducing a potential estate. Is that what mom's home was for? Was it for to give a tax-free windfall to the kids when she passes? Well, we've discussed this before. The concept of principal residence as investment is something that's still relatively new within the psychological landscape. Really, I will say really new, what's called the last 20-ish years with the explosion in real estate property uh, values. But in general, historically, that number is tracked closer to inflation. And I know many people will just laugh at that statement, but it is true. And no, it was never intended to be this massive growth asset that gets passed on tax-free. And that's why post-election, that tax-free nature might be looked at. So we'll see what happens there. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you both, in terms of the advice you would give boomers who are at or near retirement or in early stages of it for what are the most important things they should be contemplating or looking at? Give me your top three, each of you. So I'm going to let Alexander go first and put David under the gun after to come up with three different ones. Oh my goodness. Okay. So the first thing I would say is that, and in fact, we've underscored it throughout this entire conversation that your retirement is personal. So be careful that you're not relying on assumptions about you're, I'm going to just that you've thought through what are the assumptions underpinning your individual retirement at the age you retire, how much you think you're going to live on, where you're living, all those things. So don't rely on other people's assumptions, set your own assumptions. The second is actually put deliberate thought into it, right? This is the top three things to do. Yeah. That, I mean, again, we've underscored how personal this is and also how complex it is. This isn't Unless you have that magic DV pension where your work paycheck just kind of transfers into a retirement paycheck and all that happens is actually nothing. It's still paid essentially by the same payer and it goes into the same bank account, maybe even on the same schedule. Unless you have that, you have to design this yourself. So put some time and effort into it. And before you put time and effort into it, do some thinking about what is it that you actually want? What is a fulfilling retirement for you? So you're looking at the assumptions underpinning retirement in general. You're spending time deliberately planning and you're thinking about what you want retirement to look like. Over to you, David. Excellent. Well, before we get there, one quick comment to throw in there, because you said something very important in the first one. What does it look like to you? The reality is, I hate heuristics. I hate shortcuts in this industry because they say nothing about individuals' individual situation, right? So things like, oh, plan for 70 to 80% of your pre-retirement spending, like income, like, that, that has no relevance to anyone. Maybe on average it works out, but you know the reality is is that there's people on both ends of that spectrum where 100% is necessary or 60 or 40% is necessary. Then the second point I'll make in, in regards to that is also around things like life expectancy. I think I shared this story with you previously, but I once got into a debate with a client where I said, well, they argued, why am I doing X? Because life expectancy was so many years. And my response was, well, that's an average. You still have 50% of the population living beyond that. And their response was, well, that's your opinion. I'm like, no, that's the definition. And the reality is, I'll tell the old, my favorite actuarial joke is three actuaries go hunting. They see a deer, one shoots two feet to the left, the other one shoots two feet to the right, and the third one says, we got them. Averages mean nothing to people individually. That deer got away. Right? So this is the reinforced Alexander's message. What is your situation, both financially, Health-wise, family, like family goals, like all of that, all those dynamics to be contemplated in order to get the, get you to the optimal solution. So, David, I'm going to turn it over to you for three other pieces of feedback. What do you think? Three other pieces of advice. Well, I, so 
mine plays off a little bit off Alexander. So my first is plan and live your retirement based on what you want to do and not based on the tax efficiency of your decisions, right? So too many decisions are based on taxes and not on how you want to live your life. Second, I would say, you know, it's it's really not, retirement is not all or nothing, right? There's a transition into retirement that can happen. And it could be just getting a part-time job for business owners. It could be some sort of secession plan that really just winds down the role that they're doing, but they can still play a certain part or maybe really focus on what they really enjoy, right? So it doesn't have there's a dead set date that you're retired and all of a sudden you have this void of not knowing what to do, right? And then my third takeaway would just be, I'm not a big fan of rule of thumbs, but I think a really good rule of thumb is to look at delaying your CPP as long as you can as a default and then start thinking about why should I take it earlier? There's a lot of reasons why you should take it earlier, but I would say use that as the default rather than having your default be 60 or 65, especially if you don't have pension income, that sort of thing. So th- th- those would be my three. That's points. a very interesting point there. And I think, you know, that's a, it's actually a mental exercise, a mental accounting exercise or, or framing exercise, because, you know, if the default was 70, I'm willing to believe we'd see a heck of a lot more people taking it later than we currently do. But because we think of it normal as 65, people think of a couple of years as being a little bit early or a couple of years as being a little bit later. But that is a very, I like that. I mean, I'm not a believer in heuristics at all, but, and there's plenty of reasons why you take it early. But the reality is, is that, yeah, stop thinking of it as 65 as your best option, as your, as your primary option. But in general, though, I mean, I would also say the other heuristic is get advice. <laughs> It's not really your heuristic, but nevertheless, this is a complicated realm. And I always say, unfortunately with this, it's an unforgiving one because really screwing this up mm-hmm. means abject poverty in retirement. And I've unfortunately had a couple of cases in my career where I said, if you don't fix this, you'll be leaving off CPP and OAS and that's it. So your choice. That's actually, uh, that's why we wrote this book. I mean, there's an awful lot yeah. of retirement income books out there that have kind of a single message, right? You should do this, you know, oh, God, whatever that message might be or not. And this really is a very agnostic book. So it's not saying, it's like, here's the things to consider. Here's the realm of things that you might want to think about. Here's the stuff you should be thinking about and knowing about before you take this leap. Without saying uh, reverse mortgage is terrible or it's the best thing since sliced bread or retiring at this age is optimal. It's really just is laying out, here's the options you should be thinking about as you start to plan for this for yourself. Which is the correct answer, because I mean, as, as unsatisfying as it is for some people to not get a direct answer from a book, the reality is, is that everyone's life is so complex and different that the answer is always, it depends. You know, I joked the other day, I should probably have that tax in my forehead at this point. But one last thing to go back to you, and David, it was your comment about taxation. And yeah, the obsession with that, oh my God, can that lead to solve optimal outcomes? And I'll say that the true irony of it all is that, you know, there are plenty of people who will do what they can to avoid taxation to the maximum every year, just creating a massive tax liability for their estate. And if they had done, they had just basically been smart about tax their entire life, the estate would have actually been larger. But penny wise, pound foolish. What can I say, right? So David Alexander, thank you for taking the time. Uh, the book is The Boomers Retire, A Guide to Your financial to, for Financial Advisors and Their Clients, the fifth edition from Thomson Reuters, uh, available in bookstores and various locations. Remember, fifth edition, that's the current one. So please take a look at that. Everything else is out of date. So thank you very much for taking the time today. Thank, thank you very you. much, Jason.
So that was my interview with David and Alexandra, the authors of When the Boomers Retire. If you are in this cohort or if you are an advisor advising people in this cohort and want to understand the difficult landscape of decisions, this is over 300 pages of decisions that have to be made. Keep that in mind. This is a great resource and a great place to get started. So I encourage you to check it out. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever's your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.